This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Earlier today, there was a long, I understand, um, sometimes passionate debate about whether or not people in the city of Hamilton should be licensing their cats. This is not the first time this issue has come up for debate. I don't even know how many times. It, 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 it is a repetitive, recurring topic. And once again, as I believe it has numerous times over the years, it ended with nothing happening, really. It was voted down. Now, not abandoned, just put on the shelf. It could come up again later. But right now, there are no licenses for cats. Well, in the wake of this, Councillor Sam Marula, Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula, put forward a motion that will be brought forward that would say, listen, if we're not going to have cat licenses, why are we having dog licenses? Let's get rid of dog licenses as well. Um, I think I think it was a sarcastic, let's make a point kind of motion, but I'm not entirely sure. Councillor Marula joins me now. Councillor, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, thank you. So am I correct in reading that it was a bit of a sarcastic motion that, listen, if we're not going to do cats, why the, why are we doing dogs? No, it's not sarcastic. I'm, I'm prepared to um, abolish uh, dog licensing. Obviously, if there's, an, I guess, an understanding on council that uh, based on a premise that dog or animal licensing is redundant in nature or is needless, then I'm not sure why we're focused in on targeting dog owners and only dog owners and basically uh, creating a tax grab for only dog owners. I think that really is an uh, unfair scenario. We have two ways of, of paying for animal control services. We can do it and make it self-sustaining uh, with all animal owners and create a license and a revenue uh, in order to provide that service. And contrary to public misconception, uh, we cannot profit from licensing. So anything that we license can never be a surplus scenario. It all has to be used for programming. So we can't use it to lower taxes. We can't use it to build sidewalks or roads. We have to only use it for programs related specifically for the license in which it's issued. So in this particular case, uh, we have really a problem because we have dog owners who are paying for a license, and that money is now being directed to care for cats. So you have really a scenario where you have dog owners subsidizing cat owners and the cat population, and we, which truly creates an, an unfair scenario. So the other option is to have the general levy pay for, for, for it all, so that universally everyone's paying towards the care of animals. Pet owner or not. Right. Um, so at present, you have both the general levy, or non-pet owners, as well as the dog licensee paying to deal with cat issues in the city, which I think is nonsensical. I think everybody should either be part of the solution or you end up becoming the problem. And those that aren't neutering or spaying their animals or their cats compound that problem. So you create a two-tier system. You create one that you, you if you have a, a neutered or spayed cat, then your fee is $20. But if it's not, you're paying $40. we are hoping everyone spays or neuters their, their cat. And we try to control that population. But over and above that, we create an environment that's conducive to a civil approach to dealing in a humane fashion with the animal population. And that's, 
That's why the license was created. There was a time in Hamilton where, not too dissimilar to Mexico, you would see dogs running around randomly. That doesn't happen today because we created a civil approach through a licensing program to do just that. Unfortunately, cat owners feel they should be exempt for some strange reason. And whether it's related to income or not, there are there are people that are dog owners that are also in, in financial straits, right? It's not just cat owners that are. So it really is a, a, a really a nonsensical argument, one that needs to be dealt with sooner rather than later. First of all, let me say right off the top that I, I've never thought you sounded more like Bob Barker than you did a minute ago when you were talking about spaying and neutering your pets, <laughs> but that's just, you know, that's just me. Um, you know as well as I do that every time this topic comes up, and, and do you even remember how many times a cat license has come up for discussion? It's been a bunch. Probably far too often. Okay, yeah, no, but it has been numerous times over the years. Okay. And the the constant retort to this always is it's a tax grab correct i mean that's the that's the answer from the critics but it's so it's it's so nonsensical in nature because it can't be it can't be used for anything except dealing if you're a cat owner i suspect you want to be part of a solution because you're a cat lover right i don't know why people are reluctant to pay 20 dollars a year to be part of a solution that will ultimately save cats lives and create an environment that's more humane in dealing with cats the the main, uh, from what I've heard, uh, Councilor Marullo, the main criticism of any time this comes up that I hear, and I hear this every time it's discussed, is my cat never leaves my house. A, why am I paying for a license if I have a house cat? And B, how could that possibly ever be enforced? Okay. Well, similarly to what we do with the dogs. We have a lot of dogs that never leave their property. And we have a lot of dogs that aren't licensed. But... We create a program to ultimately strive to get 100% compliance, but in the process work towards uh, that goal and ensuring with whatever revenue we do create is applied to programs related to animal control and humanely dealing with the animal population. So again, if you're an animal owner, the probability is you're an animal lover. And for the life of me, I don't understand why they would be resisting contributing to a solution. And if you can't afford it, we have means testing. There will be a process where you, if you legitimately cannot afford $20 a year, then we have a process in place at the city where you will be exempt. So uh, we've, we've gone through this, whether it be rec facilities or other fees. Uh, it's, not, it's not a novel scenario. Would the amount that you're thinking that might be raised out of this, and I, I heard there's something like uh, 120,000 cats or something that's believed to be in the city, would the, would the license money cover the costs that are involved with the animal services, or would there still be extra taxes needed to be put on top of that? Well, ideally what you would strive for is revenue neutral, and that's legally what we're you're allowed to pay into it out of the general levy, but you're not allowed to make money. From okay, it. So, yep. So, in essence, ultimately, if, you, if you're striving to get 100% compliance, the probability is you'd have a surplus uh, available to deal with additional programming. So, you would have to create new programs to enhance how we deal with the animal population, but you couldn't redirect the money anywhere else. If you're, you have a shortfall, then yes, the general levy would pay for it. But at present... We do have a shortfall, but the dog owners are already paying into it that's subsidizing the entire operation. So my question is, why are we picking on dog owners? Most 
firstly, it's illegal for a dog to be roaming in the community without a leash on. So we already have that by law, and it's enforced quite, ri- quite rigidly. Um, secondly, you never see dogs roaming around randomly in the neighborhoods, but you see hundreds of cats do that are. So we need to control that. We need to ha- find a plan that will humanely deal with the cat population, decrease the overpopulation, and and basically deal with the issue rather than avoiding uh, to deal with the issue, which this council is getting a reputation to do. Council Marula, I really always appreciate you coming on tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. Uh, okay, so there is the there is the side that says we should be licensing cats because we listen. We're not we're not using the money to go and pay for other programs. He says that's not allowed. So we're going to take this money and hopefully it will cover the costs that are involved in spaying and neutering feral cats or putting them down, I suppose, or looking after them for the lost cats that are found when they have to be held for a day or two. So that's the that's the argument for a licensing fee for cats. Now, a councillor who voted against this today, and not alone, by the way, because the no's carried the day today, uh, councillor Donna Skelly from Ward 7. Councillor Skelly, thanks for doing this this evening. Nice to talk to you. It's been a long time. I'm glad you're, you know, you're able to do this. Well, it has. I'm actually, as I'm doing this as I'm walking up Concession Street on a night patrol. Good. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm... I, I was going to make a comment about uh, what was his name down in uh, Florida. Just don't get involved in a night patrol like that, like George, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Um, well, well, no, no, we'll just leave that one. Aside. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, so just if you see anything, just yell, don't get involved. Well, I have a police officer with me, so oh, I think we're okay. Well, okay, so, whew, okay, I feel much, much better. I, you know, I, I, I'm sure you could handle yourself in hand-to-hand combat. I just don't know that I really want to see it. Um, well, I would have a dog that's licensed <laughs> with me. But what about a cat that's licensed? You said no was, licensed cats. No. I mean, at what point do we stop? I think that there's... Yes, I understand Councillor Marula's argument that if you're going to be doing it for one pet, you should do it for all pets. But the argument, his argument that you don't see feral dogs running rampant... Well, I'm not so sure dogs could survive as cats do. They eat mice and rats, and, and they actually do help control our rodent population. My biggest concern is if we're going to be taxing people, I wanted to see 100% of the funding going towards addressing the feral cat population. There's a terrific program called Trap, Vaccinate, Neuter, and Release. And the problem with the proposal that was put forward today is 100% of the funds wouldn't go towards that. 80% of the funds would go towards uh, um, hiring another person just to manage the licenses that they would be, um, you know, the, the paperwork involved with licensing all of the cats. So just a, a portion of it would go to other programs for animals in the city of Hamilton. We weren't even really um, specific about where that funding would go. I have a real hesitation asking people to spend more money in the city unless we have a clear idea of where it's going to be spent. I don't think that this was, I know that Councillor Merola said we've been, you know, uh, pushing it down the highway long enough, it's time to do something. But again, I would say there isn't a real clear plan yet uh, for what we would do with the funds. I just don't think we need to keep going back to people and asking them for more money. And this smells more of a, a tax grab than anything. Well, that's the you word know, that keeps coming up. I mean, every time this topic comes up, it comes back to the word, the two words, tax grab. You know, if there is a feral... And trust me, it's bad. Uh, there are a lot of stray cats in the city. and We have to do something about it. The program I just mentioned, I think, is, is excellent. We've got to get people to start neutering their cats. That's 
and spaying their cats. That's the issue, and that's through education more than a $20 license. That's really where we should be focusing our attention. But people in Ontario, and in the city of Hamilton, but right across the province, are tapped out. They really, really are. You know, they can barely afford to pay their hydro bills. I know that's a provincial issue, but regardless, it's coming out of the same pocket. Uh, you know, you, you ask for more money for taxes, and, and any time you want to do anything in, in, in the city or in, in this province, it, it costs a lot of money. It's a death by a thousand cuts. I went and uh, my son bought a very inexpensive used car. It was his first car. I think it was just over $1,000. By the time I paid all the fees and licenses, it was free. I mean, you can't keep doing that to people. You can't keep saying we want more money for this, another tax on this, more money for this fee. People are tapped out. And to me, this really wasn't clearly thought out. If we want to deal deal with the feral cat population, let's look at how we should be doing it. But simply putting a tax, making cat owners license their cats isn't the solution. So if I can if I can take what you're saying and put and sort of use it as a as a comparison here, it sounds like you're saying the money is just going to go towards administrative or a lot of it. So it'd be like donating to a charity where most of the money is going to administrative goals rather than to actually help the charity. Are you saying then that if there was a plan that well, we could have a full-time person? That's right. So if you're saying if there was a plan that could not hire a person but that could direct the money to actually solve the problem, you would vote for it? For still uh, licensing a cat, no. Okay. <laughs> I, wouldn't. I think we need to find funding to deal with feral cat issues, whether that's city funding or whether that's, I'm not sure. I just don't like having to go back to the taxpayer and saying, you know what, we need more money because the city of Hamilton can't live within its means. We have to hire more people. You know, it's going to take an awful lot to convince me that, that that's the solution for anything in the city. We have a lot of money. We have a lot of waste. Uh, we have a lot of pressures, but the solution isn't we need more of your tax dollars. We're going to add another fee. We're going to add another license. We kind of have to get our own house in order. I think that there's still a lot of waste. I wasn't sold, as I said, on, on where the funding would go. I don't want to see more employees because that's, you know, growing our economy is not through the public sector. That's not the way to make a, an economy strong. So if this was just to hire a body, absolutely not. That wasn't the intent of the motion that was put forward, but it was, you know, we'll hire another body. Well, that's not what I want to see happen. I don't think we should be taxing people and then turning around and having to hire somebody to administer the program. One of the comments that I heard that came up today was, uh, and I was just mentioning it was Councilor Marula, many of most people probably, I, I would guess the number is most, uh, people who have cats, the cats never leave the house. But the the point that was made, I understand, around the council table today was, yeah, but sometimes cats sneak out, they get out a window, they get out a door, and we have to find them and hold them. And Would it be something to consider a user fee? You lose your cat, and this may sound like a silly thing, but you lose your cat, you're going to pay for us to recover that cat for you, and that's where we can recover some of the money for this. Well, you do. You do pay. Do you already? You Yes, you do. The first time is free, but if it happens more than once, you do pay, uh, dogs and cats. So more often the animal is, and, and that's one of the problems, too, is if you have an outdoor cat and it keeps getting picked up, it's going to be very costly. Uh, I know a lot Eventually of you just abandon animals. it. We'll get a new cat. <laughs> it's cheaper. <laughs> one of the feral cats. I do have to admit we have one of some of the most unattractive feral cats in the city of Hamilton. The one outside my house right now is missing most of its tail. 
but um, they, they, there is a huge, huge problem with feral cats. The one, perhaps I'd say, good piece of information that came out of um, uh, this report today is that only one of the cats, uh, they've only found one incident of rabies in a cat, in a feral cat in the city. So that's, I think that's pretty good news, actually. Yeah, it, it does sound like it. So now, just as I let you go, because you've, you've got to get back to uh, policing the city and keeping <laughs> uh, keeping the, that part of the city safe. Um, this, this is as... I'm going to bring you out here with me once. Once upon a time, in a different city, working for a different newspaper, I actually did the uh, the nighttime patrol with police, and I got to tell you, the only thing missing was that song "Bad Boys, Bad Boys." What you gonna do? Like it was literally an episode of Cops at that night. Um, okay, so the 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 thing about this though is, Councillor Marula pointed out, this is something that has come up and come up and come up and come up. W- are we just destined that this is going to be a topic that is going to continue to come up over and over again and will continue to get shot down until someone passes something? Or, how, I mean, what's going to happen with this eventually? Well, I think that we have to find another way of dealing with the uh, stray cat population. I don't think that this is the solution. There is zero appetite, or perhaps maybe 10% appetite for licensing cats. It's turned down for a reason. People don't want it. But I do believe that the intent is good. I do think that, that people want to raise funds somehow to deal with the stray cat population. But as I said, I don't think that the solution is simply going back and asking the uh, taxpayer, the cat owner, to cough up more money. It's going to take a much stronger argument before that will ever happen in the city. Councillor Donna Skelly, uh, back to work. Appreciate your time, though. Thank you for doing Take this this evening. Bye bye. That is uh, that is Councillor Donna Skelly of Ward Seven. So there, you have your two different opinions. And what's really interesting about this? I am not a cat person. I am horribly allergic to cats. We had a cat for years until I actually d- discovered that it was the cat that was making me allergic. I was a little slow on the uptake. Um, so I'm not a cat lover. Luke, on the other hand, on the other side of the glass, is a guy who likes cats. Yep. And here's the tr- here's the the funny part of this story. So normally you would think, okay, we're talking about cats and and saving cats. It would be the cat people that would normally be the ones who are, hey, this is a great idea. But of course, because this is a levy and a tax, it's the cat people. Many of them saying, wait a second, why am I being charged for for having to have a pet? So it's a weird conundrum that you have people who like the animals, they like the idea of animals being looked after, but they don't want to actually pay because none of us want to pay anything more. So you end up with this weird situation where do I really want to have a levy, a fee, a license fee, or do I not? If if it's small, I'm okay with it simply because dog owners have to pay it. But I am not okay with the inequality that dog owners have to and cats, cat owners do not. And I, and I understand your point of, of indoor cats because we have had two indoor cats and they pretty much never went outside except when they would escape and then you would find them right outside the door because they were so petrified of being outside that they'd want to come back in but there are also dogs that don't go outside the confines of of the backyard because they're small dogs or or for whatever reason so i i think there that the argument should be we we shouldn't have one and not the other you know who's going to really hate this the cat people, you know, the one I'm talking about, the people who they, you know, they find every once in a while who have 47 cats living in their apartment with them. 
those people, I mean, this is going to be a costly venture if this thing comes into play for those people, especially since chances are the reason they've got 47 cats is because they're not spayed or neutered. So that's a full price license. You know what's really interesting about that, by the way? Have you ever heard, I don't know why this is, it's a stereotype, but have you ever heard of a guy being that person? For some reason, in our stereotypical discussion when we talk about the cat people, it's always a woman. Is is that because there's no guys that are like that? I don't know. But I've never actually heard anyone refer to as the, the cat man. Maybe just a quirk of our language, a quirk of our stereotype, but there you go. Uh, but there, I mean, it, it will come up again and, and counselor Skelly and counselor Marula both are correct. Eventually something is, um, uh, something is going to have to happen. Whether it's a license, Frank just sent an email as a dog owner. He's saying, listen, same thing Luke just said. Why am I paying a license? He sent a long email. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but he's saying, why am I paying for a dog license when cat owners don't have to do the same thing? My next question would be, okay, what if I'm an owner of a turtle? What if I'm an owner of a hamster? What if I, now those pets well, what don't. if your turtle escapes? My turtle will not escape. He That's might. not, <laughs> if he escapes, I would like to think that I could catch him. Um, but what if it's a hamster? What if it's a, what if it's other pets? Like, well, I mean, I, I mean, and I think, they're not going to escape. That's not, I don't think that's necessarily the issue. That's part of the issue, but they're saying we want to be able to pay. We want pet owners who love animals. Not everybody, not everyone in the city. This is what Councilor Marullo was saying. We don't want everybody, but we want pet owners who love animals to be the ones who are paying to deal with the animal issues within the city. And so do you go after every pet owner of every kind? Well, I don't see that ever happening. I don't see that ever happening. I don't see them coming after the snake owners and the budgie owners and everything else, and nor, nor should they. Uh, if your budgie gets away, I'm sorry, budgie is gone. No one's going to find your budgie for you. If your cat or your dog gets away, well, hopefully someone's going to find it for you because probably you love that pet. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So Israel, as it turns out, has decided that it believes that there are more Dead Sea Scrolls. You remember the story. You know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Well, if you don't, we're going to explain it in just a moment. I mean, I'm guessing that almost all of you, if only generally, know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. But Israel has decided that it is time to launch a new expedition to find out if more of them exist. Amir Ganor of the Israel Antiquities Authority says a government research team will spend the next three years surveying hundreds of caves in the Judean desert near the Dead Sea, which is a region where the Dead Sea Scrolls, the world's oldest biblical manuscripts, were preserved for thousands of years until they were discovered quite by accident in 1947. Those Dead Sea Scrolls, to this point, are considered the crown jewel of Israeli antiquities. So could there be more that are out there? Dr. Andrew Perrin is the co-director of the Dead Sea Scrolls Institute at Trinity Western University. He is also, much more importantly, a McMaster graduate. Dr. Perrin, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, always good to talk about the scrolls, but especially with the crowd from Hamilton, that means a lot. Well, as I say, you uh, you did some time here at McMaster. You you walked away with a a piece of paper that just told you how smart you were. So we're you know we're glad you're able to come on. Good, the homegrown talent. 
this this idea, this exploration, this kind of search for these, th- this is a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, this is a huge deal. Um, this is a huge deal to, for a, a, a government and the Israeli Antiquities Authority to invest, not just in a summer dig with some kind of volunteer university students, but to say that they're going to go out and comb the desert for up to three years uh, hunting around for, for caves and texts and artifacts. You can imagine there's a lot of resources and energy and politics involved. So that is a big, a big announcement that came out about this. Is there something else, whether it's in your line or whether it's in the Middle East or wherever, is there anything else in the world of archaeology that would that's still out there that would match up to this level of, of interest or importance? You know, I think the my, my kind of short answer would be no. Uh, the reason why for uh, for Western culture, regardless of your background, your history, your uh, if you're part of a faith community or not, the Dead Sea Scrolls um, are foundational for just their common cultural heritage. Uh, whether you're a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, or don't have any belief system that you, you, you follow on a kind of a day-to-day basis, this gets at something that's common to all of us. Where did we come from in Western culture? Um, I don't think we find anything else in kind of the, the archaeological record or even surprise finds that would get at that level of, uh, of impact and importance for so many people around the globe. Does anyone take issue um, with the idea that the Dead Sea Scrolls are authentic? Like when they were found in 1947, there's never been anyone who has said these things are not what archaeologists say they are, do they? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question to ask uh, currently, and it's one that's being asked, because part of the beauty of finding things uh, in their location, you find a text in a cave or you find an artifact on a site, you can document what it is and document where you found it, and part of that is to show its authenticity. Now, one of the things we're finding in the last uh, number of years, and even just just coming to, to light in the past uh, number of weeks and months, is some of the texts that were found uh, in the Soviet found in the late 40s and early 50s uh, found their way into private collections and are only being sold now to collectors, museums, universities, um, uh, some in North America, some in Europe. And the question there has been, or starting to become, is are these authentic texts? Were they texts that were found uh, in those 11 caves and they were held onto uh, by private collectors um, for a number of decades? Or are they perhaps forgeries? And that's a very interesting question that I know there's, um, I have a colleague here who's working with some other um, scholars around the world on asking that question about authenticity. So part of the beauty of, um, of, of the Israeli government uh, saying, we're going to go look in the caves ourselves, is in a way that short-circuits the problem of, of forgeries and authenticity. They're going right back to the source um, to find if there's more texts that were left behind. But the ones that exist in the museums and the ones that exist as the, the main ones that we all have seen or know about, there are those ones, it's, it's established that those are legit, correct? No one, no yeah. one questions those? Yeah, for the most part, there'd be very few in there that would be questionable uh, forgeries, uh, if, if any at all. I'm thinking more of kind of more uh, recent discoveries that have come up, come about in the last uh, decade at most. But all the texts that were found in the 40s and 50s and that were published uh, in the years that followed, I think few would contest their authenticity. For those who don't know, and I can't imagine there's too many, but I'm, I'm sure some people don't know, explain how, when you say how they were found, how were those original Dead Sea Scrolls discovered? Yeah, it was qu- quite by accident. So we, we started the conversation saying these had a huge impact for, uh, for us around the world and for, for what they mean for us as human beings. 
but it was an accidental find. Uh, the story goes there was uh, a, a group of Bedouin uh, shepherds that were out just tending their, their flocks, and a young boy was off looking for a lost animal and did what young boys do best, and they just throw rocks out of frustration. And when he threw a rock into a cave, uh, he was hoping to scare out the animal and heard a clink. And the clink was the sound of a, a, a stone hitting pottery. Uh, and as he went in and had a look, what he found was the first cave. Uh, eventually, 11 caves were found where there was jars. Some of them had scrolls in them, as well as scroll fragments on the ground. Um, so the Bedouin made the initial discoveries and continued to be a really important part of those ongoing discoveries that between 1947 and 1955, um, expeditions happened, scholars, archaeologists, the Bedouin continued to comb the caves, but eventually what we ended up with was the remains of about 930, 930-some-odd texts, uh, some of them relating to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, but many of them also being ancient Jewish texts that gave really important insight into that period that Judaism and Christianity grow out of. And who, who wrote these, and how did they end up there? The, the text that we, we found uh, were you know, on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, and right close by, uh, in fact, within, within eye shot of one of these caves, Cave 4, is an archaeological site uh, known as Qumran. And it seems that there's an ancient Jewish group, probably a scribal community, um, that were associated with this other, with the group we know about called the Essenes. Uh, in the New Testament, we read, we read about Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, the Essenes were another ancient Jewish group, and it seems like the Qumran group was uh, was related to that was related to that larger philosophy. Now it seems that they were uh, associated with the texts, perhaps even copied some of the texts, and perhaps even deposited some of these texts. Uh, we also know that other Jewish groups were uh, were coming in and out of Jerusalem uh, in that time, so it's possible that some of the texts were deposited in those caves by other Jews who didn't know about which is to say that if we have another attempt to go look through that desert landscape, find more caves, uh, perhaps find new texts, but then even get new context and new questions about them, um, it just carries on this conversation to open all sorts of uh, possibilities. Do we believe that those pottery, those pieces of pottery that contain these, were they supposed to be hidden, or did it just happen they were placed there, do we believe, and that the people left and they were left behind? Yeah, this is a, an important question, one to, to kind of dig around deeper in. Some of the caves um, uh, are, are, are natural caves, uh, but one of the caves, at least one of the caves that's closest to this settlement, was a, uh, a hand-hewed cave. It's, it was one that was carved out for use. It seems that some of them perhaps served as uh, almost like a bookshelf or a library for this community, that uh, we do this in our own homes. We have our collections of books or DVDs or CDs, whatever it is, and we, we store them, and we have them in a place that's accessible. Uh, so some of the caves, like Cave 4, seems to have served that function, perhaps, for this community. While others, um, at this time, if there were groups fleeing from Jerusalem, it's possible that they had texts with them, and those would have been prized possessions to ensure that they were kept safe uh, as they are being pursued by some of the Romans at this time. I mentioned... Um in the introduction, uh, Amir Ganor, who's a guy with the Israel Antiquities Authority, he's one of the people who's leading this. He has said that he, and he put, this is, I'll put this in quote, he knows that there are more out there. Do, do you share his view that you know there are more Dead Sea Scrolls out there? I would certainly share his optimism and be happy to uh, to join in for a summer dig. I think what he's <laughs> getting at there is that 
this isn't just a hunch that they're going off of. Uh, as early as, or as recent, I should say, as, as last summer, um, they were involved in an, in an emergency expedition to try to recover some texts that they had heard about, uh, that there were looters, in fact, out in the desert finding artifacts and selling them on the black market. So the Israel Antiquities Authority um, came to the rescue of that one cave and did a, did a dig, and they found a number of things in there, no texts that we know about, but they found some things, uh, some human remains, a, a jawbone, uh, other items that related to kind of real life, um, things like packets of seeds, uh, that what they discovered was a, a site they'd known about with some new artifacts in it. So I'm, I think that's what his statement is, that he's certain. Well, he's certain because he's been in one of those caves and seen some of those finds. Um, uh, the certainty of text is perhaps another thing. I would be, I'd be the first person in line to... To, to shake his hand if he's correct, because if we find even one text, uh, it's, it's definitely worth the find. So there is a rush to do this, though, from what you're describing. If there are looters out there that could find these, there is a real hurry to, to try and dig these things up. Yes, we're in a, a, an unfortunate time where um, antiquities dealing and black markets for antiquities uh, are, are it's a huge industry, uh, as is the industry of forgeries. So I think some of their urgency is, is really to be applauded, that they're hoping to get at materials so that they can be published, so they can be disseminated, so they, they can be enjoyed by scholars and the public, rather than sold for some atrocious price to end up at a bank vault where very few people can experience those things. So their motivation is, is based off of a, a good hunch that there's more out there. And I think that their, their move to do that is something we should really be applauding them for. Do, do most people, and I mean, I, I think I know what where you're coming from on this, uh, which is probably a combination of both, but do most people look at finding more Dead Sea Scrolls as searching for a historic find or for a religious find? I think it's, I think it's a mix of both. For me, it's, it's definitely a mix of both, um, uh, where the, the texts that we're studying um, were religious texts for the people that copied them and kept them. I think in, in our own minds, quite often in modern society, we have uh, religion as something separate from other areas in life. But in the ancient world, not just for Jews and Christians, but for anybody else in the, in the ancient Near East, uh, religion was part of every area of, of life. Uh, even that term religion is problematic in, in that sense. So when we're studying these texts, we're studying texts of, of, these, uh, of an early Jewish community that had a heritage of traditions that they inherited through their Hebrew scriptures. And they're always asking that question of, uh, how do those texts mean something for us today in light of their ever-changing political, social, religious, cultural contexts? Uh, regardless of if we, if, as modern readers, we share those same uh, religious sentiments and motivations, I think we can really identify with that struggle, because we all face this in, in some area in life. And how do we understand the world around us in light of where we've been as a people, as a culture? Uh, and in that sense, I think that the, the historical question and the religious question uh, aren't exactly two sides of a, uh, of a coin. They're, they're perhaps closer together than that. Why does... I mean, many of the artifacts that we know about, um, because of the age of them, have a religious component, but why do religious artifacts, why does religious archaeology seem to fascinate us. And I mean, I, I throw this out there because look at two of the three, maybe all three of the first three Raiders of the Lost Ark movies. One was for the Ark of the Covenant. One was for the, um, 
the Holy Grail, uh, two religious artifacts. Why, why does that particular line of archaeology seem to have particular resonance with people? Yeah, I think more than anything, we owe a debt of gratitude for Harrison Ford for Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> that's the most important thing, I think, to, to point out there. But <laughs> the, the secondary thing, I think, would be that part of these, these, uh, the intrigue around archaeology, these kind of Indiana Jones-type stories, and religious artifacts specifically, is I think, again, regardless of what tradition you're coming from, we genuinely want to know uh, where we've come from as a people group, and if you have a theological frame of reference, is there something else out there? Um, the text of the Bible that we, you know, you can go to the bookstore, uh, and you can buy a Bible, you can get them from a church, you can get them all over the place, at least in Canada, they're freely accessible. But one question I love talking over with students here is, where did that come from? And most of us, whether you read the Bible as scripture or as just ancient literature, have no idea. And part of the, 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 the kind of amazing thing of the Dead Sea Scrolls is they help us retell that backstory. This is where we've come from, whether that's uh, for religious reasons or for historical reasons, for that, again, that common cultural heritage component. There's something there that plugs us into where we've come from as a people group in the past. And uh, religion is, is definitely part of that, that thread that we can chase backwards. Well, and the interesting part about what you just said... Um, if you find an ancient manuscript, an ancient document somewhere, and you can establish for absolute fact that it is not a forgery, that it's been in a cave for thousands of years, whatever, um, you can then study it, and it is either going to bolster the historical accuracy of the Bible or the Torah or whatever religious book yeah. that it matches, or presumably it could be something different, which would in many people's minds, throw some question, throw some doubt into the accuracy, the veracity of the Bible, the Torah that we have today. Do you worry that you could find something that would suddenly be very different from what we know, and suddenly everything that we think we know is thrown into confusion? That a, a, a great question. I don't worry about it. I'm excited about it. In fact, that's kind of part of the reason why I do this, is I think for, for academics or for anybody in life, questions are good. Uh, and if, you know, if you're reading the Bible as scripture, um, then if we, if you're saying what we think it says, then we better start asking some hard questions. Now for the scrolls and the biblical texts, they in many ways confirmed what we knew about the Bible, but at the same time, uh, revolutionized what we thought we knew. Um, among the biblical scrolls, we have copies of every book. It seems like every book, except probably for the book of Esther. And all of those copies, um, matched up statistically most of the text matched up very closely to our our best medieval copies so about a thousand years out from our medieval copies the Qumran text in the kind of early centuries before the common era very similar in most details in content and in structure to biblical texts that's something that is huge to confirm to authenticate and to kind of look back and see that there's a, a surprising amount of fidelity in the ages of scribes working with a text at the same time, there was a, a number, a hundred, even thousands of, of differences. Uh, those differences range from small changes of, of words and spelling to phrases to even a full paragraph here and there. Now, my view is that can either scare us and it can debunk the Bible, or we can ask the better question is, uh, as we would with any piece of art or any artifact, how do we use this as an opportunity for artful restoration? How is it that we understand the antiquity of the Bible better? How is it the Bible that we read today 
um, looks m- closer to what we find in the um, ancient Jewish and New Testament eras, and how to restore it. Uh, and that, to me, is, is something that comes out of a difficult question, but uh, the outcome is something better than we had before. It is a fascinating thing. I say it's going to be going on for three years. I, I don't even know. Are they starting soon? I don't even know when they said they were going to be starting this exploration. As far as I understand, this is motivated by that uh, their their dig this last summer. So I imagine the the time is of the essence. This will be something they roll out very quickly. Um, I don't believe they ha- they've had an official um, direct press release, but I, once that's in place, I'm sure we'll hear more about it in the next uh, in the next number of weeks, if not months. And I have to believe there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Dr. Andrew Perrins around the world who did what you said a moment ago, volunteering. That I uh, sure I'll come and dig there for a while. You bring me along. I'll I'll come and do this. I bet there's no shortage of people willing to be part of this. Yeah, some of the best discoveries are made by complete accident by the people you would never expect. So I hope that they find a, a, a good number of those students that, um, that are willing to do that. And um, we, from time to time, have, have trips uh, to, uh, to Israel with students to do that type of thing. So um, if, if people are interested in doing that, definitely keep us in mind. Um, we've got a Dead Sea Scrolls Institute here. We're the only place like that in North America. And this is an area of research that we're interested in, not just for uh, religious reasons, but for historical reasons, like we've talked about. Well, when you or your students find the next batch of Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, you know where to come on to talk about it. It will, it will be right here, and we'll make sure that the first stop is the, the Hamilton Art Gallery or the, uh, the Art Walk on James Street. That, that will be there for sure. That would be very cool. Dr. Andrew Perrin from the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls Institute at Trinity Western University, and as I said, a McMaster graduate. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Great, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, really, really interesting kind of thing. We, you know, uh, for many people, the idea of archaeology is something that's, because we've never done it, it's very cool. I mean, it's something that just seems like it would be something really cool to do, whether it's because of Raiders of the Lost Ark, whether it's because of the early scenes, you know, at the beginning of Jurassic Park when they're trying to clean off the dinosaur bone. I mean, whatever it is that you're working on, it just seems like it's, for a lot of people, it'll be a, the idea of doing it is great. The idea of finding something really important is amazing. And they believe absolutely, wholeheartedly, that there are more Dead Sea Scrolls out there and they're going to go and try and find them. We'll see if they do. But we do know that they found some before. So there's at least reason to believe that it's not outrageous to think that something could be found. And the most interesting thing to me is this, unlike a lot of other things, if you find more Dead Sea Scrolls, you're not talking about a statue or a chair, or a human set of bones or something. You're actually talking about writing. So it it would be very clear what is said and what it will mean. It would be something very, very clear to the people who can look at it to see what, in fact, they have found. Really interesting stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Here's the story. In BC, there was a guy who got engaged to a girl. It happens millions of times around the world every year. Whirlwind relationship, apparently. But they got engaged and he gave her a $17,000 engagement ring. That is, you know, he was not showing any problems with the idea of commitment. $17,000 engagement ring. That's pretty good. 
However, he also, by the way, paid off her mortgage and her line of credit, which was another $85,000. So he was he was in this. He was pouring his money into this. Anyway, whirlwind relationship, as quickly as it started, it ended. And they ended up in court because he was saying, listen, the eighty-five grand that I put into the mortgage and the line of credit, well, she should be paying that back. And the engagement ring, the $17,000 engagement ring, well, she should be giving that back to me as well. That's mine. What do you think? The judge ruled it was hers. The judge sided with her and said, no, no, absolute gift. Once that has been given, it is hers. No questions asked. And he's out of luck. What do you think? Well, I thought we would go to a deep font of knowledge this evening. A man who, you know, just not that long ago got engaged himself. And, you know, it's not going to end. So we, we know that we can ask these questions without the same kind of worry. But nonetheless, Jamie West of <laughs> Sunday Brunch, co-host of Sunday Brunch, executive producer of this show, a man who has great depth of knowledge was the judge right in this one? Who belong? Who gets that ring? Was it the right move? When you give the ring, is it forever and ever, or should he have got it back? Well, first of all, 17 Gs the guy paid for that ring, correct? That was the number. Boy, do I feel like a cheapskate. <laughs> <laughs> Did you also pay $85,000 in line of credit to get everything you know out of the hole? I just don't understand. He was, he was, he was buying in completely, obviously. That's love is blind, I guess sometimes, and and stupid. Um, I mean, first of all, yes, the judge made the right decision. Absolutely made the right decision. That guy, I am, I, I'm sure that judge was thinking as I'm thinking, as many people would be thinking, that you stuck your neck out, you did this, you made this decision, you're now going to have to live with it. And part of the problem in society today is that too many people are getting away with too much and aren't being made to live by their decisions and be held accountable for them. It's created a real problem. So I'm, I think the judge did the right thing. What a bone, bonehead that guy was. <laughs> for, for, those the who judge, are, the other guy. for those who are listening... Tell me who you think should have the ring. Tell me who you think is right. Radley at 900chml.com. Send me just a one-line email with who you think should be actually getting the ring. Should the guy get the $17,000 ring and his $85,000 in cash back? Or, as Jamie says, is he a bonehead who, you know, he bought in and she now gets it? See, here's what I think may end up happening, and I don't know if it will. But if there's anybody, Jamie, now who is going to look at this story, you go, well, you know what I'll do then? I'll buy my my fiance a really cheap engagement ring until we actually get married. And then once she ties the knot, then I'll, I'll up the ring and I'll make it really worth her while. Or you, or you just get a, uh, you just get an engagement prenup now. You don't, now it's, now it's, you need an engagement prenup. Really? I never even heard of that. Prenup. You know, like, uh, I have never heard of it either, but I can see that. It, it, you know, it's just another thing for uh, all the lawyers to, to invent. Another <laughs> yes. thing, thing for them to profit from. Another contract to sign that states, 
yeah, um, okay, if we, you know, if we break up uh, before we actually get married, then you, then it's understood that I get the ring back and, you know, whatever. I... Phil just Phil just sent an email saying until they officially get married, the guy would retain the ring. Do you agree? Do people agree with Phil, or do they agree with Jamie? Who should be getting the ring? Radley at nine hundred chml dot com. Send me a quick note if you want to uh, if you want to have your say on this. See, I'm I I have to admit, Jamie, I'm I'm I feel almost a little more like I'm on Phil's side on this one. I feel like if you have. Got in, well, no, actually, let me back that up. Whoever breaks off the engagement, quite frankly, should be the one who doesn't get to keep it, right? So if the, if he broke off the engagement after giving the gift, yeah. too bad, so sad, you made the choice then to walk away after. But if she broke off, and it doesn't say who actually, it just says they broke up. If she broke off the engagement, no way she should be able to keep this. I'm assuming he did. I just... I don't know. I'm just assuming that he he busted it off. I, I know we don't know, but that's my assumption. It's usually it's usually guys that do that because the the women go for the money. Actually, I just read this story again that I'm reading where this came from. It was she who suddenly ended the relationship. Oh, forget everything I said. We still we still get the censor button. Like we're still on a delay, right? You can hit it. Go back. No, but I so that to me changes it. That, if she was the one who received okay. now, now, and let me throw one more quirk it into this. Let me throw one more now wrinkle into this because as you're reading through this, this is this is what makes this so complicated. She broke it off, saying, and these people they're not identified by the way, or they're only identified by initials, even in the reports. She broke it off, claiming that he had been sexually abusive towards her. So, of course, but the point is, there's all these different things, and yet somehow at the end of it, he is out a hundred grand, and out not just a hundred grand, but out a wedding, too. It's complicated. <laughs> Why do you keep bringing up these complex, complicated issues on your program, Scott? You're, you're killing me here. Right? I just, I, I look at this, and again, I, I just come to the point, whoever breaks it off, to me, doesn't get to keep the loot. Oh, I agree with that. I was, I was going to say, um, uh, if I was going to say, okay, let's assume that he broke it off. Um, then my natural inclination is to say, okay, she's entitled to keep that ring if she wants to. But I also have a part of me that says, why would she want to? Like, well, cash in, sell it. Yeah, I know, but but you know what? Just say here, take your ring and stick it. I don't need your money. Like, where's your pride and your you know, your no. self-esteem. There's uh, a lot. There's a lot of pride in a hundred grand. I'll tell you. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, it's one thing if he had given her a sliver of a diamond that was worth thirty-seven dollars. Uh, is anybody doing spending seventeen G's on a on an engagement ring anyway? I mean, come on, really? I mean, I I know I don't live in a world that has that kind of disposable income, and I never will. But I still don't understand it. I still don't understand it. I mean. I can go in a jewelry store and look at a ring that's a couple thousand bucks, and I can't really tell the difference between one that's five thousand dollars or ten. I I, I can't. Oh, there should be a special. There should be a special kind of service you can get at jewelry stores where you can buy an engagement ring that costs two thousand dollars, 
but for an extra hundred, you can get a specially made up bill that says it was sixteen thousand. So, yeah. so when you when you hand it to your fiance, they wow. Well, they do that in a sense. We're probably being really uh, inappropriate right now. I don't know. Some people are going, "Wow, these two are cheap." But anyway, no, no. But think back. I mean, they 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 actually kind of do that because they'll give you they, they charge you the retail price of whatever the ring is, and then they give you this uh, this official jeweler's estimate of replacement value for insurance purposes and it's always jacked up. It's always it's always a jacked up value, you know. So by all means, guys, I mean show her the appraised value of the ring. Don't tell her what you paid retail. Show her the appraisal. It's oh, worth twice that amount. We are we are the last of the romantics, Jamie. I got <laughs> Jamie I hope, West. I hope Danielle's not uh, not listening. No, listen, Jamie West. Appreciate the insight today. I'm going to throw it open to the callers and see what they say. Appreciate the time. Thanks. All right, Scott. Anytime. Take care. Uh, so, what do you think? Who gets the ring if you if you break up and somebody had an engagement ring, whether it was worth fifty dollars, a thousand dollars, or seventeen thousand dollars, and whether you had paid off her mortgage or just bought her a tank of gas for her car? Who, what do you do? Who gets the, does someone get the money back or is that a gift? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. You heard my side of it. My, my view is whoever is the one who broke it off should be the one that gives up the loot. So if she broke it off, that stuff should all go back to him. Every dime should go back to him if she broke off the engagement. If he broke off the engagement after he gave her the stuff, too bad. Too bad. What do you think? 905-645-3221, star 9900 if you want to jump in on this one. Luke, you recently also just got engaged. Yeah, just, just and again, check and make sure that you don't you didn't get my fiance on the phone. No, again. no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But again, let, we're, we know that everything is going to yes. end happily ever after. But let's just for the sake of discussion say that something did change, who would you expect that you would get that money back or would you expect that that would be hers? Uh, It depends. Or on what, under what circumstances? I mean, for the most part, I think it's common courtesy to give it back no matter who was the person who broke it off, but there are extenuating circumstances. Uh, I don't believe that you should have to give it back if the guy cheated. Okay. Uh, again, that's that's um, that's that's a good one. That's that's a good point. If, they, if if someone was cheating, absolutely, that's a good point that Luke brings up. That that would seem to me also to be a deal breaker, no matter what happened. You got someone cheating on you, boom. That's uh, that's theirs. The other side. Now, I mean, you cheat, the other person gets it. What do you think? Nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred. Who would get this? Who should be getting this? Did the judge get it right when he said, "No, this is this is her. She broke it off. She broke off the engagement, but that gift was absolute, and therefore there is no way he's getting this money back. He's a hundred thousand dollars into this relationship, and the judge says, "No, he get he doesn't get any of that back." That's I mean. On its face, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal for her, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Maybe it's maybe it's just because I'm a guy, and that's you know I'm looking at it from the guy's perspective here. But that's a that's a that seems like a pretty sweet deal for the woman. Now, 
but legally, I guess, you know, if he's, if he's wanting to go that deep in, if he wants to jump that deep in, in the commitment, well, you know, I guess you, you, you play the game, you take your risk. I mean, it sounds very unromantic, doesn't it? That we're, that we've broken down the engagement, the pre-marriage, the, the love, we've broken it all down to a financial status, to a financial point. But man, you don't think that, you don't think that when they, when she broke it off, that he was kind of saying, wait a second, how, wait, what? I don't, I don't get my, my money, but she gets to keep a hundred thousand of my dollars and she broke off the relationship. What do you think? What do you think? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Just got a couple minutes left here. Who should have got the money. Who should have got the ring? Should should he have got the money back or should she have been able to keep it regardless of what happened? Regardless of what happened. Mark is on the line. Mark, how are you this evening? Oh, Peachy came. Good. Well, what do you think? Who should have got this? Should she have kept it or should he have got the money back? No, he should have gotten the ring back. The ring is not a gift. The ring is, is, is really part of, in, under law now, really is really an intent to form a contract, and the contract has been broken. There is nothing currently that says, if I say I want to marry you and I change my mind, that, you know, uh, I should be penalized for that. Secondly, I'm a relationship therapist, and I can tell you very clearly that people get into marriages all the time, and they find out afterwards that their partners absolutely hose them on something. And so, you know, forget just the issue of cheating. You know, they get married to somebody and find out they can't disclose, haven't disclosed pertinent health issues or debt issues or uh, criminal tasks, all kinds of things that, you know, may form uh, a change of decision. So if, if that occurred between the two of them, again, the ring is, is, is yours to keep you know, after the day that we do our ideas. But if for whatever reason before that, you know, I think that it is morally as well as ethically responsible for her to give it up. Mark, thank you very much for the call. I appreciate the insight. Let's, uh, we just got just a second left here, a couple seconds left. Mary, how are you this evening, Mary? I'm great, thank you. What do you think? We've got about 20 seconds. Who gets the I ring in this case? She should give the ring back. It's his. They didn't get married it's until the I do. She chose to break it up. She should return the money that he cost up for her well, and give the ring back. Mary, thank I think, she, I think she planned it all ahead of time. Well, to see that now, well, we have no way of knowing that, but I, I, I really appreciate your insight tonight. Thanks for the call. Thank uh, you. you know what? There's, there's three. Jamie? Mary, Mark, well, four, me, Luke. Luke was on board, too. That's five. Clean sweep. She should have given it back. Now, I'm not saying that a ring is a contract in, a, in an engagement, but it, just let me leave you with this, because I don't know the answer. Is a ring in our society the equivalent? Did the, I don't know if the history of it, I don't know where the ring idea came from. Is that the equivalent almost of a dowry that you would give in some other cultures? Because what happens in other cultures if you had your daughter who was going to be engaged to marry someone and that marriage didn't happen? Do you get your dowry back? I don't know the answer to that question. But if it's the equivalent, well, there's your answer again. The Scott 
Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.